Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Very happy to have Dr. Stephen Gorard with us. He is Professor of Education and Public Policy and a fellow of the Wolfson Research Institute at Durham University and Honorary Professorial Fellow at the University of Birmingham. He is the author of nearly 1,000 books and papers. Boy, a little bit more ambition, Dr. Gorard. You can actually get to 1,000, including, quote, Philosophy for Children, Evaluation Report, and Executive Summary. Thank you so much, uh, Doctor, for taking the time today. So there has been a kind of approach in, at least in the past, in the study of children and critical thinking. And uh, Jean Piaget, one of the, uh, I guess, early to mid-century noted developmental psychologists, put forward the argument or had the impression that children really weren't capable of much critical thinking until about 11 or 12. And for some other um, belief systems, it's around seven and so on. But... I think it's fair to say that children are very receptive and benefit significantly from Socratic dialogue and philosophical approaches to questions at uh, earlier than puberty. Is that a fair point to make? I think that's right. I mean, there's going to be a, a huge range anyway. I mean, these were, those were presumably, even if they were valid, they were very general ages. I and mean, we noted a, a large variation in the ability of children to engage in these things. Um, one of the things that wasn't very variable is that how much the children wanted to engage. So even the youngest, even those who had particular learning difficulties and so on, were very keen to have their voice heard. And one of the things that the teachers told us was that children appeared to become more communicative, you know, more engaged with the class as a consequence or you know, alongside um, uh, the purported philosophy for children. Yeah, I mean, children want to talk about the big issues in the world. And, um, of course, I think philosophy is foundational. A reason equals virtue equals happiness, as the ancient Greek mantra sometimes goes. And children want to be happy, and they're very curious about the deeper elements and aspects of life. Now, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about uh, Matthew Lippmann called, quote, the most influential figure in helping young students develop Mm -hmm. philosophical uh, thinking. Now, he started his movement, uh, Philosophy for Children, in the 1970s. Why, why, oh, why, oh, why? Is this not part of what people understand about pedagogy and, and how to teach children? Because it seems very important to me. Well, it may be that it is. Is There are many things that go on in education. Uh, you know, people push for, I don't know, you know, formative feedback or something like this. And what they're really describing is what often good teachers are doing. And what an intervention like ours tries to do is to see what's the impact of uh, asking other teachers to do similar things. I don't mean that teachers reinvent uh, philosophy for children in the Lippmann style. I just mean that a lot of the things that go on in it might go on in classrooms anyway, unobserved, and that good teachers might try and get engaged children in exactly that kind of way. You know, the talking circle is one part of it. One of the important aspects of it was asking the children what it was they wanted to discuss. And, of course, that required some preliminary work in terms of um, getting them to understand the difference between if you like, factual questions that you could simply look up on the Internet and philosophical questions and other kinds of questions that we simply couldn't answer. Um, but I say that, that could go on in a classroom anyway. It's so interesting. Yeah. But it's interesting for me to note as well that in sort of the grim repetition of history, one of the things that uh, Matthew Lippmann was, uh, what the, the, one of the things that stimulated him to want to teach philosophy to children was looking at the political win-lose, uh, aggressive upheavals taking place uh, on university campuses. Now, 
it seems to be that we're kind of back to that place again with some of the uh, hypersensitivity, political correctness and so on. So his, I think his approach was to say, well, look, if, if people have gotten to college and they're this bad at debating or this afraid of, of other ideas or alternative approaches to the world, we've got to start solving the problem earlier. And it seems like we're kind of back in that place again, where if this work had been done 10 or 15 years ago, uh, we might have a lot more civility on campuses at the moment. We might, because we don't know how it actually cash out in the future, because so far the assessments have been relatively short term. You know, we looked at um, the impact on cognitive attainment and on actual you know, outcome in terms of um, literacy and numeracy. I was surprised to discover that there was um, any evidence of an impact on literacy and numeracy because I can't quite work out what the, what the mechanism would be for that short-term gain. But I guess motivation could be one if it's a valid finding. Well, the argument could be as well that uh, numeracy follows logic and uh, language to a large degree follows logic. Uh, and so if you teach children uh, how to reason, then they'll find other things easier. I mean, uh, I remember when I was a, a kid um, studying ge uh, geometry also seems, you know, you were making a series of logical arguments. So let's talk about philosophy for also, children. So we did speculate on that, but we couldn't say from the data we had that that was the reason. Right. So philosophy for children, uh, this is something uh, that um, has been around for quite some time, I guess it's 30, 40 years. Uh, and I'm sure, of course, it's been refined. But what if you could help people understand how it, uh, how it is approached, how is, it is implemented, how the teachers are trained? Yes, I can try. Obviously, in some ways, I'm not the best person to do that because we were employed fundamentally as the evaluators for the system. And we worked with the developers who were the ones that did the training and so on. Um, but yes, the, these were primary school. Uh, it was intended as a whole school approach. So the training days that we saw, and there were, there were days uh, when the school wasn't in operation, I would have called in-service training days here. Um, and they included all of the staff, including the administrators, all invited to come along and either one or two um, of the members of the organization running the intervention um, explained what the intervention was, but actually then put them through the examples. So they were sitting in talking circles. They were asked to you know, move to different parts of the room to um, defend particular um, positions. You know, they were given a question and asked to, to move around and then whether particular factors changed it. And there was a lot of enthusiasm there in the ones we saw. I don't think it was just because we, the evaluators, were present. I think they made it fun, and the teachers who were there obviously enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not sure it always cashed out into um, if, like, you know, ideal conditions in the classroom. It's very hard sometimes for primary school teachers or any teacher to give up the control and what this one day was trying to do with resources and text and then visits by the team to the schools to see what's going on. It's not enough in itself, I think, to overcome that desire to, to control the classroom because you have, to, you have to trust the children, you have to let go. And there were lots of strategies for how to do this. But, you know, for example, we saw an example, we saw an example in a, this was actually a, a Catholic school, where the teacher concerned was the religious studies teacher and something came up about the existence of heaven and hell and the teacher would not allow that to be discussed. They wouldn't countenance somebody suggesting that, say, heaven and hell did not exist. And that seemed to me to be anathema to the whole basis of the program. I mean, that's an extreme example, but 
you did find that the, the teacher was still being teachery in a way that perhaps, uh, you know, you might not want in the ideal conditions. Well, of course, that is a challenge in teaching philosophical inquiry to children, that it may lead them, as Socrates, of course, found in ancient Greece, it may lead them down a path of questioning that people in authority or people who have authority over them, whether it's teachers or, or parents or priests, mm-hmm. may find uh, discomforting, to put it mildly. But we saw other examples where um, teachers quite clearly uh, were not uh, impressed by the argument being put forward, but just allow them to be, to be made and to be met by others in the group. Which we should we thought was exactly how it should be, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so so this training, the training went well. I think the teachers in general were enthusiastic, but many interventions once they're they're tried in the school, there's a there's a momentum back to like normal classroom practice. Concerns about you know assessments coming up, perhaps at the end of term there are field trips and so on, so that if something is is let go, it tends to be the new boy, the new thing that this was. So it was generally well implemented, but occasionally you saw that it was given lower priority than, you know, for example, things that the government demand by law. Yes, a a daffodil and a bulldozer come to mind. But um, so (laughs) let's talk a little bit about the study that ran... Um, re- relatively recently, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, that's the one thing that that really caught my attention, and I think would be fascinating to uh, the listeners uh, to to this show, which is the results that came out of that study. Uh, to me, were astounding, amazing, fantastic, exciting, thrilling, uh, and um, should should I think reach a much wider audience. So, what was it that you studied, and how did the data play out? So, we were doing a randomised trial where uh, we had a large number of schools that were randomly allocated to receive either the P4C, Philosophy of Children Intervention, um, or to wait. I mean, we used a waiting list design, so all of the schools were eligible. We think it's unethical, I think, to do it any other way, or to do it most other ways, so that everybody would get it. But there was about a year and a half where the schools that were selected at the beginning undertook the philosophy intervention, and we took... um, data and measurements and so on from all of the children in both groups at the start and obviously again at the end and there were some interim measures. We were primarily interested in, uh, because of the nature of the funding, the people who funded us, they want to see does it make a difference to attainment? Uh, you, know, I, you and I would obviously think, well, it, it might make a difference long term, it should make a difference perhaps to the, to the life, to the citizenship chances of these children. But the funder was primarily interested in, you know, the bread and butter of does it make a difference to that. So we looked at attainment. We also used the cognitive ability test, the CAT test. Um, and we were looking, therefore, at the gains, the difference in the gain between the two groups. And what we found was that um, the differences were all positive towards the philosophy for children group. We did, of course, have a small amount of attrition. That is, cases you drop out. But they were reasonably balanced between the two groups. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't think it's enough to explain the scale of the difference, particularly in attainment. You can never, I mean, I don't want to make you less positive, but you can never guarantee that it was directly the impact of P4C. But we know that that was the major variable that differed between the two groups. And so it looked as though to us that giving up curriculum time that would have been teaching if you like, the more factual basis of, the, of, of education for this more general discussion-led 
um, approach to learning. Certainly didn't reduce the attainment in state-sponsored academic tests, looked to have increased it. Unlike previous studies, there was less of a difference in the cognitive ability or cognitive attainment scores. And previous studies had suggested you can improve them, and indeed you can, but although the improvements were there, they were very small, and they were so small as that I wouldn't want to go to the wall defending them as being different from zero. Now, the, the cognitive uh, tests, yeah. would they be in the sphere or in the realm of IQ tests? Uh, yes, I suppose to some extent they're like a verbal reasoning test, but it has various components. Um, but unlike an, an IQ test, which is meant to be uh, some kind of uh, defining characteristic of a person, this is meant to be a measure of their ability to reason and to, to solve problems in a way that's malleable, that can be taught. But we did sub-analysis for different types, you know, so verbal reasoning, spatial reasoning, and so on. And, and I, I didn't, because the, um, the developers wondered if there were particular types of skills that were coming across. And again, that wasn't particularly fruitful. So it well, I mean, if, it, yeah, if, it, if it's any consolation, I mean, my understanding is that the more G-loaded the tests are, and I assume that these are somewhat G-loaded, um, general intelligence loaded, the more G-loaded the tests are, the harder it is to budge for. I mean, you know, the America just spent $100 billion or something on the Head Start program, which wasn't able to budge intelligence tests much uh, at all. Certainly I mean, a short term little bit, and then it sort of settled back into the norm. But what is fascinating about this study is not that it moves the baseline of, of what, is what the brain is capable of, but it just seems to make the brain much more efficient, even in tasks unrelated to the direct philosophical questions at hand. Yeah, so we, we looked at uh, uh, maths, math you'd call it, uh, uh, reading and writing. And because the, well, it's possible, it looks as though because the uh, intervention involved reading, because there was often stimulus material that would start a session, and they would then discuss the, the interpretation of or the implications of, um, there was this uh, increase in the scores for reading over time for the intervention group. There was also an increase for maths, and for the reasons that you've suggested it could be as a kind of logical um, and confidence element there. But there wasn't uh, such a noticeable increase for writing. But there was no writing element in this. So again, it, it, that, that for me is some indication that it is due to the, the nature of the intervention. Right. I should just say, I mean, you were saying, don't be too disappointed about the, you know, the G factor in the IQ test. Um, we as evaluators can't care too much about whether the thing works or not. Our concern is primarily to discover whether it does, and if, and if, it, if we know that it doesn't, at least we can say, well, if, if, you're, if your objective is to increase attainment or to increase cognitive ability, cognitive attainment, then this is not the way for you. And it wouldn't have distressed us too much if it had been that way, although I have to say personally, I'm reasonably pleased that it turned out the other way. Because it looked like, it was an intervention I didn't know about, and it did look uh, a really, really interesting and challenging thing for young people. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, the only way to increase uh, G is to choose smarter parents. Uh, that seems to be the only thing that, that is aware of. And, yeah, if you want to become taller, just choose taller parents. But the, the point is, so if we accept that G is very difficult to budge, then what we want to do is help people work better with the cognitive abilities that they have. And this is where the program, I think, is very interesting, uh, that the children seem to be pretty enthusiastic 
uh, about it. And I vividly remember as a little kid having conversations about death and infinity and what happens when the sun burns out and, you know, just the big picture kind of stuff. And most of my friends were interested in that as well. And I don't think we were way off the charts uh, as far as the regular life goes. So what? Um, how, how is the program uh, implemented? My understanding is uh, there's a story or there's a video uh, that, uh, you know, truth or fairness, bullying, uh, other kinds of um, epistemological or moral questions are sort of raised. And then there is a discussion, there is a challenge to create better arguments, there is a stimulus to build uh, a better sequence of statements. Is that roughly how the it's program is implemented? It's very democratic. Yeah. Although the, the material would be... Uh, age-appropriate, and, and the teacher would have a role, obviously, in selecting what video or, or, or storybook or, or other you know, material they would look at or listen to before they start. The children would be in a, in a discussion circle. So the, chair, the, the classroom would look very different to a normal primary school classroom. And uh, once that's finished, they would split up into small groups of maybe three or four. There was normally an exercise that involves them running across to, to chairs in the other parts of the room. And the primary purpose of that is to mix them up so they're not sitting in friendship groups and, and ability groups and things like that. So it's mixing up the classroom. They then go into these little groups and think of questions that arise from the stimulus material. And then they, they pick, say, one or two that was their favourite in that small group, share it with the larger group, and either the teacher or maybe a scribe will put these up on the board or an interactive whiteboard, and there will then be a, um, a blind vote they're asked to, this is for the very young children, they're asked to close their eyes and then the teacher will read out the questions one after the other and count how many vote for each and they will be sitting there crossing their fingers hoping that the more interesting questions will be voted on. Um, and because the, uh, the children don't know who's voting or necessarily whose question it is, you don't get that kind of favouritism you might otherwise have. And it normally works out well. I mean, I, had, I did see one or two where you could see the teacher's you know, their heart was sinking that it was that one that was picked. But normally it works really well. Um, and then it becomes a general discussion. Um, there, are gen there are rules for interaction uh, which ought to be kept. I mean, it's not terribly structured, but we don't want people calling out. We don't want people putting their hands up because that kind of suggests subservience. So there's simply a palm out gesture, which means I would like to respond. And the only reason for the teacher to intervene because the, if like the, the baton is passed from one speaker to the next using these palm gestures is if um, it looks as though one small group is, is dominating the discussion. Because on the one hand, you want everyone to speak. On the other hand, if you move from one topic, you know, you, you're, you're discussing a topic and then someone introduces something completely different, you might lose the argument. So it's the skill of the teacher is in allowing maybe one, two, three, four children to interact in discussion for long enough to get to some agreement or, or to agree that they disagree, but without allowing one clique to dominate the, the situation. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, and it seems that's sort of the marketplace of ideas that we all, you know, those of us who want to bring new ideas to the public sphere are constantly jostling with everybody else who has maybe different yeah. ideas or opposing ideas and so on. So it does sound like that's an interesting way of attempting to recreate some of these sort of marketplace of ideas, gaining people's attention uh, through um, uh, being interesting or, or whatever it is. And so that's actually, I think, fairly good preparation for uh, attempting to influence public life for the better. I think that's a very, very creative way of approaching it. But I was now, surprised because the classes here are 
are quite large. You know, there were 28 children, perhaps, maybe sometimes 30 or 31 children. Uh, some of them were smaller. And I would have thought it would work better with a smaller number. Um, but that, this is the way the intervention was done. And yet it did look as though a large number were interacting because they were, they were talking in their small groups. Uh, there, were, there were often activities at the very end to, to, end, up the, to end the situation um, where they could write their own conclusions or, or maybe have a vote on a particular contentious issue at the end and decide this is what this class believes. So everyone did play a role. And the other, the other part of the teacher, of course, is if there was a particularly diffident child or a child who had language difficulties or something, to make sure that they did get their uh, appropriate share of attention. Right. But, uh, so it, 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 I'd be interested to see how it worked with, say, 12 children in a circle. It right. might be worse, of course. It might be less exciting and less boisterous. So, you know, my particular goal as somebody who's fascinated by philosophy and loves bringing it to the world is to give people access to philosophical thinking that they probably otherwise would not have gotten and certainly would not have gotten through government schools where you can go for 12 years and never take, get a course on, on logic. One of the things that I found particularly exciting about the outcome of this study was the degree to which the disadvantaged children seemed to benefit even more than the other kids. Yes. I mean, the, the, um, technically the effect size for the, the children from the, the poorest families was much larger, was it twice as large or even... <coughs> was it what? So it's important to remember that the, those children, in a sense, were not randomised. I mean, no, they were, but they weren't specifically randomised. So the trial was of, you know, the, those who had the intervention and those who didn't. So it doesn't quite have the force of a randomised trial, but I think it's powerful evidence that um, if you wanted to reduce the gap in attainment and in thinking between the, the disadvantaged and the others, then this might be, well, certainly, it's certainly one of the things on the menu as the way to go. Uh, can I just say, um, since we did this trial, we've now been funded by uh, two more um, charitable foundations to continue the work. So in a sense, we're now taking the schools that were the control schools, the ones who didn't do it in the first wave, who are now taking it up and then comparing them with another set of schools. But the, out the outcomes here we're interested in are non-cognitive, largely. So this extent to which... Um, could, I mean, one issue is, does it have any impact on creativity? Not sure whether it would or not. But I think more, more coherently with theory, it could be to do with um, things like self-reliance, self-esteem, uh, communication skills, sociability, uh, you know, working in a team, things like this. So we've developed an instrument which we did with the Cabinet Office here in government for another very large trial, and uh, we're using that in these projects to try and see a bit more about the wider outcomes of using philosophy in, in, the, in the classroom. And I hope this work will get, carry on. Yeah, I mean, if you'll indulge me in a tiny rant, it seems one of these things that's self-evident, uh, and it's also, always great when data hits your self-evident um, conclusions, which is that, well, what is the human brain for? The human brain is for thinking. It's not for memorizing because there's many uh, machines and computers can memorize much better. It's not for useless repetitive tasks. Robots can do that much better. Our brain specifically is designed for thinking. And so the idea that you introduce something into the, the educational system that aligns perfectly with what the brain is for and that this helps children, uh, it seems to me entirely in line with what I think uh, the, the, well, it uh, does. the brain is an instruction. 
you've got also uh, advocates saying uh, in order to, to reason, in order to um, be cultured, to be literate, you must have some knowledge as a basis for it. It's no good doing that on the basis of ignorance. Um, so things like the core knowledge curriculum in, I think was started in the US, but there are similar things here. There are even academics in this country advocating that um, you know, knowledge is not needed anymore because of the internet age. We've got others saying, no, knowledge is more important because it's about understanding. So interestingly, we did another trial of a core curriculum, which was trying to get disadvantaged children to learn more about history, geography, early, you know, basic economics and so on, to see if that helped them to, uh, to be literate, to be more aware and so on. So you've got almost a tension between those who want um, a different kind of curriculum with more information, um, but of a different kind to that in the current sort of uh, maths, science approach, and those who are saying, no, it's more about reasoning. And presumably you're saying common sense. The common sense would be you need a little bit of both. You need some materials to reason with, but you also need the skills to do the reasoning. I mean, you need the vocabulary that the children picked up. The kind of words you use in reasoning and in logic and in, and in rebuttal, uh, which was really fascinating to see them start using these words and teachers saying they were using them in other areas as well. They were using them in their science essays and in their English essays. But they, they, you've got that tension and presumably it's both. And I suppose the reason that the, the advocates of philosophy are correct to push for it is that at the moment maybe the pendulum is swung too far towards knowledge and too little towards reasoning. Well, and of course, as adults, and I would assume that at least preparing people for adulthood has some purpose of pedagogy, but as adults, we pursue knowledge in order to achieve a particular goal. I mean, we don't just randomly bounce around and read random bits of random books and, and then assume that we're becoming wise. We have a particular goal that we wish to achieve, and therefore we pursue knowledge in order to achieve that goal. And, of course, the problem with the educational system in general uh, is that the goals are all externally imposed and you plot along getting the knowledge in order to fulfill somebody else's goal, somebody else's curriculum, mm -hmm. somebody else's agenda. With this, I would assume that the children say, oh, I can have the goal of, of understanding something about the world, uh, making better decisions in my life, and maybe even influencing other people to, to think the way that I do. And that motivates children, I think, to pursue knowledge in order to achieve a particular goal. I recognize that's way outside the scope of what we're talking about, but it was just something that... Well, we have to follow them through. Um, the, de the, the, the disadvantage of the ethical design we used, where everybody gets the intervention, um, but one group gets it a year or a year and a half earlier, is that you have no long-term control. You can't then wait and see what happens when they're 15, when they're 20, when they're 25, and so on. Um, but there is a scope for that, and there is a mechanism that the government has put in place here to track the children who've had these interventions and compare them more generally um, with a whole range of outcomes with the children who haven't had such interventions. Now, it's not like a trial, but I think that longitudinal um, information could be useful in, in 10, 20 years' time. Now, sorry, just, just to clarify, um, is that to measure the effects of the intervention when the intervention has been for, say, a year or two, or is it if it continues uh, through their educational pro pro uh, progress? Either or both. So okay. what, the, um, what the researchers are doing is recording what interventions each child... So we have what's called an, a national pupil database. So each child has a record on it, and it follows them through their... It, it's not made generally available, but researchers can have access to at least subsets of it. Um, and it follows the child through their educational career. 
and it could be then added to that as, as, a, as an item, which interventions they've had in which years and for how long. Um, and so you can have a, you, you've got a sort of, you know, it's about 750,000 children in each cohort. So for each cohort, you've got that many, and you've got millions of children, obviously, at a time which we can see and begin to make judgments about the longer-term impacts of interventions, right. which tend to, the impacts tend to reduce over time, obviously, and the differences sure. get smaller because um, you know, other things intervene. Well, I mean, it's like anything, there's always a plateau. Yeah. I mean, if I had continued to get as good at tennis as I did over the first few months, I'd rule the, uh, the court by yeah. now. So I come from an entrepreneurial background, so I'm used to, translating things into numbers. Let, let me throw some numbers at you and, and tell me if this analysis makes any sense. So as far as I understand it, um, the average gain for the, the kids involved in, in studying this philosophy of children program was about two months ad advantage in particular areas. So uh, I looked it up. The average cost for state schools in the UK hits £22,500 per child in okay. 2013. And that's for about a 10-month um, school year, I assume, or something like that. You know, Christmas and all that, but roughly. Okay, yeah. Now, the cost was £16 per pupil per year for a school of 240 pupils, the cost of this Philosophy for Children program. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that I would present this, if I you know, had the chance to present a, a, the cost efficiency thing, is I'd say, okay, well, look, well, you got a 20% gain, more or less, because you got two months out of 10 months advantage. You got a 20% gain out of 22,500 pounds. That's 4,500 pounds of value for a total cost of 25 to 30 per pupil with the economy of scale, 16 pounds. So you're sending, spending 16 pounds to gain 4,500 pounds of economic advantage. Now, if you went to any investor and said, hey, I can turn your 16 pounds into 4,500 pounds worth of value, uh, you'd have a lineup pretty much going around the planet three times. And sure. that to me is, is it's, it's appalling to me that this would not be rolled out in a wider basis when the gains seem pretty clear. The harm, uh, other than to people's vanity or, or egos or insecurities or sense of control over the classroom, the harm is, is non-existent. The benefit is clear. And the fact that it benefits the least advantage the most um, helps to, I think, even make that case stronger because isn't that what oh, public does, education yes, is would, supposed yeah. to do? Yeah, because actually they're often the hardest to shift the scores for. And yeah. uh, in this country, we have a, uh, as a policy, a very, uh, a very good policy called the pupil premium where schools get extra funding for um, the level of disadvantage of the children in the school. And, and that money is meant to be spent on precisely this kind of thing that would uh, reduce the gap between them and the, and the remainder of the, until it's no longer needed. Um, interestingly, there was a, there was a jump, I mean, a huge jump in the uh, number of uh, schools registering to use philosophy of children when the results of the came, trial came out. I mean, not, not to the extent that you perhaps would want or imagine, but uh, the, the organizers, the developers, you know, sent us some graphs, um, which I thought was, was interesting to see um, how this had an impact in terms of um, the schools doing it. But, I mean, again, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to go too far away from your positive approach, but you could consider, first of all, with any trial like this, you're asking schools to, to participate and to agree that um, they're willing to forego the philosophy for children for a year or so if they're unlucky enough to be in the control. So you're dealing with volunteer schools, and they're schools that are strong enough to say, yes, we'd like to do it, but we're willing to wait for a year or a year and a half to do it. 
So the score, the, the effect size you get with this school wouldn't necessarily translate in exactly the same scale to the less reluctant. So if, this, if the government suddenly said, it is now the law that every Friday you will do philosophy for children in, in, in the most reluctant schools, you would expect the effect size to go down and so on. Um, and the other thing is, is the cost is obviously uh, the cost of things like the training once it's scaled out from the number of children in the school using a whole school approach. It assumes you have the resources to do it. So there might be other costs that you would want to produce, uh, introduce into the scheme to buy um, a slightly different kind of resource to stimulate the children with and so on. You might discover what's more or less appropriate over time. So I'm not arguing with, with what you're saying in general, but it could be that um, the, the gains are not as remarkable once they were rolled out into wider practice. Oh, absolutely. I, I understand that. And, but even if we were to take an extreme example and say that the gains are only going to be 10% uh, in yeah, some places, yes, that's yes. still £450 of value for £16 of spending. Again, that's not a tough sell. Sure. Uh, the problem yeah. is, of course, the incentive issue where you may, say 40, you may spend £16 to gain £4,500 of value, but the £4,500 of saved value doesn't go into anyone's pocket. And uh, that, of course, uh, takes out – it's this socialist problem of, of incentives and so on. But uh, the data is compelling enough that I think uh, all educators – because, because, because the children who are disadvantaged appear to, do, appear to thrive under this, then in a sense that – for me, that overrides the financial thing. It looks like it's not going to cost money. It looks like it's not going to cause any damage to attainment, standard attainment targets, you know, school performance figures or anything like that. So, you know, the, the most negative thing you could say is it's not going to cost anything and it's not going to cause any damage. And then there's that promise of reducing the attainment gap. So I think, you know, a lot of schools would be prepared to try it. Well, it's interesting to me that the degree to which when, we, when kids talk about bullying, uh, a, a lot of bullying has to do with uh, class. A lot of bullying has to do with the advantaged or the disadvantaged, the, you know, the kids who uh, come to school in cars and the kids who come to school on the bus. And, mm -hmm. and so if you can close the gap in terms of cognitive achievement and attainment, it also closes the, the gap, which is the biggest invitation to certain forms of bullying. So it would have such a ripple effect on the entire school culture that, again, to me, um, you know, if I could fund it for every kid on the planet, I would do it tomorrow. But uh, that it seems to me very, very compelling. I mean, but I think the reason for doing it must be also intrinsic to the nature of the intervention because, you know, um, as I say, as, a, as an evaluator, I've seen and I've read evidence for, but I've, I've also tested other interventions that are much less um, perhaps intrinsically interesting that look to me uh, much more patronizing. You know, the kind of phonics types interventions for poor readers that were very, very basic and simple and um, didn't appear to have rich content and yet they were producing uh, similar kind. I mean not everything works some things work some things don't but there are now a range of things you could do with the money from the pupil premium that would appear to be able to reduce that gap so to, for me it's almost like it's an a la carte menu of things if we can be if we can provide good evidence to schools and practitioners, school leaders, and to say these are the kinds of things that work, they then have to choose from that a la carte menu using cost, you know, practicalities and so on, which ones that they would like to use. And you would 
think, and I guess you would hope, that philosophy for children would come near the top of their wish list. Because if it's giving about the same kind of advantage as some of these others, and yet is so radical in some respects in terms of what education is like, it's more like what education should be, perhaps, then uh, you hope that that's one, that's one of the ones they would pick. Right. Now, when, uh, you, when do you start the next uh, research project, and when is it uh, aiming to, to conclude? Uh, we've already started. The, the, there's one funded by the Nuffield Foundation, um, and we are, where are we at? We're coming up to the, uh, the post-test we call it post-test, but it, 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 it's a range of, of measures we're going to use, including surveying all the children who took part. The post-test is this summer, and then the results will be coming out in the autumn of this year. But we're doing another study of a similar kind in North Yorkshire, in the north of England, uh, which is starting as soon as that one ends. So they kind of end on. Fantastic. What we're doing in each case is, is piggybacking on the control group from the last one. So with each group that has volunteered to take it up but has agreed kindly to wait so that they'll be acting as a control group, then they become the intervention group for the next round. Right? So it's no longer, by the third stage, it's no longer a randomized trial. It's a matched trial. But it's a relatively cost-efficient way of looking at this, I think, interesting new idea of non-cognitive outcomes. Right. Well, it's fantastic work, and I, I hope that you'll come back on when the results come out in, in the fall, because there's to, almost yes. nothing I won't do to help publicize this kind of information, given how beneficial it, uh, beneficial it is, particularly to disadvantaged children. What about children. if we just, what if we discovered that you know the it was damaging to non-cognitive outcomes? In any trial you do, when you press that button with the results, you, you, I mean, there's a kind of free song of excitement because you genuinely don't know what the outcome is going to be. What if, what if uh, it suggested that children became less sociable? Would, would you still want that? Absolutely. Listen, I, I follow the data wherever it goes, and I, okay. I try to be the man sailing with the winds of facts, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely will want uh, uh, whatever information comes out of this is information that I really, really want to get out. Because, you know, as we all know, the, the education and wisdom of the children is the, is the foundation upon which the future stability of society is built upon. So what, wherever the data leads that can help with better educational and, and um, thinking outcomes for children um, or, or what to avoid. To me, this is all essential information to get out. Yeah, we also do, uh, we've got a process of evaluation. Obviously, we observe the thing in operation. We talk to the children, the parents, the, the practitioners, and so on. So that if, if it turned out that any of these things didn't appear to be successful, we would begin to have some idea if there were particular barriers or, or it was implemented badly and things like this. Yeah. So we tend to get an idea of which schools are implementing it well, which not so well. And we can use that not in a randomized trial type analysis, but we can use a kind of dosage analysis. So is there evidence that the progress was greater in the schools that did it in our prior judgment better or had more lessons a week of it? And that's what the, that's what the evidence showed for attendant. And we'll do a similar thing with the non-cognitive outcomes. Fantastic. Well, I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing. We'll link to the study below, and uh, I hope you'll consider coming back with the new data in the fall, which I <laughs> eagerly await to, to get okay. my hands on. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Garada. Great pleasure to chat. Thank you.